Three, two, one. What did I say? Wood? No, we're not no, starting. No, no, no. We're keeping that. this. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is November 5th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hello, Neil. Hello, Sarah. Are you glowing from your fantasy football victory? You know, it's uh, we're, we're going on to Cincinnati. You know, it's just, we're, we're moving on, wow. you know? Wow. It's just, it's just one game. We're taking sure. it one game at a time. Yep, every day you know. give 110%. Right, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And on the line from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm great. Are you excited about your Nationals prediction in the World Series? You were the only one who got it right. Was I the only one who said the Nationals, or was I the only one who said Nationals in seven? Both. Both. Both parts of that you got correct. See how I snuck in another brag there? I'm obviously taking the Nationals uh, just to play my role. That's being a little (laughs) counterintuitive. How many games? I'll take seven. You know, while we're on uh, the topic of my accurate predictions, which is not a transition I make very often— I also said that the Patriots would lose before the Niners. So, yeah, I was going to bring Think that up. about that. How did that work Look at out? you. Yeah. I mean, that was not a very tough call, yeah, but didn't, sure. Didn't Elo say that, too? Yes. Oh, boy. So, <laughs> but did you so wait, call... Congratulations. Jeff, did you call the Jets' loss to the Dolphins? That's I the actually... I will say this. I didn't, I didn't do it on air because I, I think... You know, we do our listeners a service by limiting how much I, I just rant and rave about the Jets, which really no one wants to hear. <laughs> we do I all of us I don't, I don't want to hear. But I did think they were going to probably lose that game. That's how that's how this Jets season has gone. What about uh, your fantasy football team, Jeff? How how did you do there? Uh, big win. Big win. Zeke Elliott last night, you know, didn't even need the points. He could have. I, I was going to rest my rest my starter, my starting running back last night, but I couldn't because I'm not a real coach and it's a fake team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to avoid uh, playing your fantasy players and having them get hurt. I don't know what was going on with Stefan Diggs, though, Sarah. I mean, he had four yards. What what's happening? Can I do a complete 180? And is are you right in that maybe Kirk Cousins is not that good? I don't know. <laughs> Jeff, I am always right. And no, Kirk Cousins is not that I good. I just like and... taking the exact diametrically opposed <laughs> opposite stance I took the week prior. <laughs> Which actually I think is evidence that I am, in fact, correct. But now Kirk Cousins did very well in fantasy football for you. He did. Neil. <laughs> that is correct, yes. You know who didn't? Mitch Trubisky. <laughs> and they were traded for each other. And then uh, we may or may not have made an illicit under the table agreement in which Sarah – uh, agreed to buy me yet another Chipotle lunch uh, in exchange for me benching Jameis Winston and starting Cousins, who had an inferior projection going into the week, uh, just for fun. It it wouldn't have mattered, but I am the actual worst of this. <laughs> <laughs> I, so I I've scored, paid <laughs> real I, money to lose. I've scored two lunches, right, out of that I'm one done. Cousins <laughs> Trubisky trade. And like – and and the first lunch was because you thought you were making the argument that Trubisky is the better player than Cousins, so I was getting he more out of the trade. Did have a higher projection going into the week. Yeah, I am bad at this. Wait, and... Neil, you have both those guys. Why don't you trade me one of those guys? I'm over here starting Sam Darnold like a jerk. <laughs> no, we. I have Trubisky. Neil has Cousins. I have Cousins and Winston, though. Yeah, that's what I mean. Cousins or Winston, I'll take it. 
I'll take anything. <laughs> Do you want Trubisky? Any guy can (laughs) throw the ball more than... Yeah, do you want Trubisky? Do you want Trubisky? Because he is available. No, no. The Bears (laughs) shouldn't want Trubisky. No, why does everyone... No one should want Trubisky. I don't care if you're reality or fantasy. Not a starting NFL quarterback. I'm sorry you drafted him very high and you turned down Pat Mahomes for him and a bunch of other things, but you got to move on, Bears. Find someone else. Is Is Mark Sanchez still out there? Well, he retired this year, but he's probably like, you know, close to game shape. He'd be down. He'd be up for it. And I was going to say, if you sign Mark Sanchez, then you could do the same thing the Bears did a couple weeks ago, which was uh, rather than let cut him loose and let him throw the ball to try to get closer to a game-winning field goal, you could just take some knees with him. Maybe he might even run into the back end of one of his linemen, and then you could miss a field goal, which is the Bears' Unnecessary. You know, MO. I mean, we talked about the butt fumble recently. We don't we need did. to talk about it every week. I didn't, he, he didn't have to fumble this time. He could I, just run into the back oh, of the center and butt. hang on to the ball. <laughs> I am very excited for the Bears to uh, beat the Vikings when they play again in a few weeks. Oh, God. Inexplicably, always, because the Vikings. That did happen earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, on today's show, we will take a look at what Steph Curry's broken hand means for the Warriors and the state of tanking in sports more broadly. We'll preview the start of the college basketball season and we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Last Thursday, Steph Curry broke his left hand in an awkward fall during the Warriors game against the Phoenix Suns. By Friday, Golden State had announced that Curry would miss at least three months. Before the season started, even with Kevin Durant gone and Clay Thompson likely out for the whole year, it still seemed like the Warriors could be in contention for a championship. And in fact, they were my preseason pick to represent the Western Conference and the NBA Finals. Have Jeff and I switched places now and I just make all the <laughs> yeah, bad predictions? Yeah, we're living in a bizarro universe right now. I don't now. like this. I don't like this at all. But instead, this injury could derail the entire trajectory of the franchise. But maybe this is the best worst case scenario. Here's Tyler Parker on The Ringer's The Hottest Take. The best thing that happened to Steph Curry is breaking his hand this season. <laughs> I'm not sure a broken hand is ever a great thing for a player, but this could turn out to be an okay thing for the Warriors right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, right now we have them projected to win 36 games. That would be bad, but not, uh, you know, super tank level bad. But in the NBA, you can kind of control if you're a bad team, how many games you win, if you, if, especially if your best players are uh, injured. And so, um, you know, this could be an example of a lot of people have brought this up, that it would be sort of a, a one shot tank opportunity for them, which don't really come along that often. Most of the time in the NBA, when teams tank, they they plan it and they, they trust kind the of process. go full Sixers and trust the, <laughs> the process. But we've seen opportunities like this come up. Um, I'm thinking of the 1997 San Antonio Spurs is, is the one that kind of comes to mind first, that you lose David Robinson pretty early into the season, roughly the same point in the season when Steph Curry went down for the Warriors. And you just, you know, play badly, have some lottery luck, and suddenly you've got uh, Tim Duncan alongside not bad David Robinson and you've got Twin Towers. Now, I think the the state of the Warriors in terms of the players that they have and the and the players what they expect to do, I'm thinking of Draymond Green uh in particular, 
is is a higher level and they're accustomed to more winning than uh, maybe the the '97 Spurs leftovers uh, were after uh, Robinson went down. But I don't know. It's kind of an interesting wrinkle to add early in the season, and it's probably better for the Warriors to maybe pursue that route than you know, miss the playoffs by a few games and have a bad draft pick and, um, you know, not really get anything out of the season. So the Warriors did win Monday night, um, but their lineup... They're back. Yeah, they're back. (laughs) Their lineup did not look like a consistently winning lineup. Uh, Eric Pascal, Glenn Robinson, Willie Collestein, who is an actual starter, Kai Bowman and uh, your boy Jordan Poole. We got a couple of Michigan guys in there. That's not going to normally win you a ton of games at the NBA. Yeah, they're going to be terrible. <laughs> Let's not read too much into last night's result. They're they're going to lose a lot of games, but it's important because the the pick is protected one through twenty, so the Nets won't get it um, if they're in that lottery range, and and that's big. But you know, to say this is some golden ticket's a little extreme because a the way the lottery percentages have changed, you know, nothing is guaranteed. Look what happened last year with New Orleans. And frankly, I don't know. I mean, it, obviously way too early to tell, but there doesn't seem to be like a Zion Williamson, Anthony Davis type surefire number one out there, even if, if they were to get incredibly lucky. So, yes, it will help them to some degree, but it's not, you know, something they should be, you know, dancing in the streets in Oakland over. They're going to have to watch a lot of bad basketball. Let's see how loyal those fans are, guys. Let's see. Let's see if all those Silicon Valley diehards are are driving up to to go watch the Warriors when they're you know losing to, by forty to the Jazz. <laughs> as exciting as it is to watch Jordan Poole miss three pointers, <laughs> and I've been there. It's going to be a long season. Yeah, and in in this particular case, the the star that's kind of left standing is Draymond Green, who is one of the most unique and interesting stars in NBA history. And I think I argued a few weeks ago that he does sort of belong in the conversation of the great players of the game. But that comes with a caveat, and I think our colleague Chris Herring is writing about this today even, that because he is so unique – he was uniquely suited to produce like a star and play a star role on a team like the Warriors that already had guys that could create, guys that could shoot, guys that could do a lot of things. Uh, and and now that a lot of that infrastructure is gone around him, you're not going to ask Draymond Green to go out and score you know, 20 to 25 points a game and carry you every night. That's not the type of player that he is. It's kind of built-in tanky. I mean, it sounds bad, though, because I, I feel bad for Draymond being kind of in this role now that he's kind of miscast for or being unable to kind of amplify uh, the players around him in the same manner that he's used to. But, you know, that's what comes with being such a unique player. He's also hurt, too. Torn ligament in his finger. And D'Angelo Russell's also hurt, too. Well, so are either of those guys someone that the Warriors should consider trading? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, if you want to kind of blow some of the the core up of the past few years and kind of look ahead beyond just this one year, maybe that's the answer. But I, I don't know whether the Warriors are willing to do that, first of all, and kind of look ahead beyond... Um, you know, doing what they can this year. And then it, it almost feels like, uh, and, and from the statements that they've made, they're saying all the things that they 
you know, all the right things about tanking and saying, oh, we would never do that. That runs antithetical to, you know, who we are as a franchise. Uh, and these guys are making a lot of money also, you know, in terms of you look at how much money is owed to Russell and Green, uh, not just next year, but several years beyond. I think it might be a little difficult for them to make some kind of trade uh, in in that regard. And I don't know that they would necessarily want to because the fantasy uh, way that all of this works out is that you do get at least some kind of, you know, potential star in the draft, even if it's not like a franchise changer. And then you just slot that player in next to whatever you can retain of the core um, from those championship teams or those finals teams and just kind of keep it rolling. You retool, you don't rebuild. I think that's the thing, and this probably applies to baseball, maybe even football, is we haven't really seen a blueprint for the half tank working, the sort of like one foot in, one foot out style tank where you're you know, retaining some of the old talent and you're not really you know, dynamiting the entire rotation and the entire core of your franchise and rebuilding from scratch. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that's possible. I mean, it, the, the, the better move might be to just try to unload Draymond at, at the deadline if that's possible. Well, you know, I think about um, one of the teams we wrote about in baseball going into the season, I think wanted to do that was the Cleveland Indians, that they, you know, had shopped all of their higher priced players and they ended up trading Trevor Bauer at the trade deadline and uh, they they missed out on the playoffs by a few games. And That's what happens when you underestimate the Minnesota Twins. I well, I think that I mean, yeah, that was part of the argument was because the the rest of their division seemed so weak. They um, <laughs> they felt like they had margin to do the half tank, uh, as you put it, Jeff, uh, and kind of oh, we'll ease off the gas a little bit, but still you know keep keep going fast enough to win the division, and it didn't really work. Uh, and they weren't even able to really make all of the trades that I think they would have preferred to make. So I think it's like so complicated. It's much easier to either go all in on contending or all in on tanking and just do like, you know, just be brazen about it in either direction than kind of walk that tightrope in between. Though I feel like the Warriors have one opportunity to sort of do that that kind of, well, we weren't going to tank, but maybe we're kind of tanking thing with D'Angelo Russell, because I always thought they were going to trade him at some point this season. He's not a great fit for them. My thought was when before before Curry got hurt, my thought was that they would trade Russell to get a piece that fit better and make that push for the playoffs. But now they could trade him for picks or or still someone who who would fit better. Yeah, but do you kind of damage his trade value by kind of running him out there and in, 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 with subpar supporting cast and his numbers aren't that great? And or all do of his sudden, numbers look better with a subpar <laughs> supporting cast? Well, yeah. <laughs> is this I mean, really his time to shine is my question. <laughs> I think uh, that would have maybe worked also in a previous era of the NBA in which you could look at a guy scoring 19 points a game and be like, Oh, the, you know, good, good player. Let's go out and get him. Now, instead, they're looking at some of the um, advanced metrics and being like, oh, his true shooting percentage is below 50%. You know, uh, bad defensive metrics, bad uh, on versus off, really bad on versus off. Maybe, yeah, that also kind of uh, cuts into it is this idea of it was easier to unload players uh, and and kind of smokescreen their true value um, before every team started kind of looking at the same numbers. The question is to what end? I mean, like, 
even if they really tried to salvage whatever they could of this season, what's the the ceiling of a, a first round sweep, a first round loss? I mean, like, so they have to sort of prioritize like the next couple of years and and see you know how their roster shaping up and what they want to do. Um, I, again, I'm not endorsing tanking, but you know, decisions need to be made at a certain point. Yeah, and uh, that's I'm sort of... I'm tanking for the record. Yeah, I kind of figured you were. Um, but this all sort of speaks to the core conundrum that the league faces in trying to reduce tanking anyway, is this idea of like, you know, are you pouring resources into something that falls short of a championship or even falls short of the playoffs? And in, in this particular case, teams are like, What's the point? Why are we doing this? Why are we wasting, you know, uh, whatever we've invested in this team to see them not make the playoffs? And that's kind of tough. That like all or nothing where it's like you either make the playoffs or you don't and there's nothing in between, I think does cause teams to kind of shy away from, you know, putting too much into a team if they kn- if they know they can't make the playoffs uh, without, you know, investing a lot more. So the counter argument that's to that, right, is the fan experience. And so do you lose fans? Do you, do you lose fans that you can never get back if you tank? And I'm not sure if that's, I mean, people aren't going to probably show up this year, right? As you alluded to Jeff in at golden state, the fans are back in Philly. Obviously, I was going to say the Sixers have the second highest attendance in the league, um, which does, I think, kind of send the message that it's, it's fine. It's that they will forgive you if you build a good enough team out of the ashes of a tank. Is it so? Is it easier to tank, or at least to tank briefly in the NBA? I mean, the Sixers are a pretty good example of trusting the process and the process working. The Suns look decent this year they look really good this year after looking terrible the past couple of years i mean so is that is it more successful in the nba than it is in other sports well it's probably more successful in the sense that it's easier to predict which prospects will become stars and so then you can kind of use that as the stepping stone and then those stars more reliably lead to your team being successful down the line. So the NBA has like the perfect mix of all of these factors that make it feel safer to tank than other sports. You still need some luck and you need to make smart decisions. If you have bad luck and you make bad decisions, you turn into the Knicks and it doesn't really matter. <laughs> the Knicks you know, aren't even how. tanking. The Knicks aren't trying to tank anyway. No, the I Knicks are just know. bad. <laughs> At a certain point, they're like the Jets and the Mets. Or it's like, are we trying to win or lose? Everyone else <laughs> seems to know what they're doing except for us. We're we're kind of <laughs> caught in between. That that and actually, that's not a coincidence. Part of that is the product of the you know the marketplace that the, all those New York teams are playing in, where there is extreme pressure to you know, be at least remotely successful every year and, you know, never, it's hard to really sell the full tank. But the Knicks, what happened, and, and they looked like they were lined up for this big offseason. They got bad lottery luck and then bad luck with the Duran injury. If, if, if you want to, like, honestly consider they were in line to get him and uh, things didn't fall into place. So th- there is some risk here. I mean, the Sixers, took a couple swings at this before they seem to get it right. It does seem like the NBA, it's a little bit easier, partially because they're just fewer players, right? And they're, each individual player matters more. The NFL seems like an, an impossible way to tank. I, I don't know if the Dolphins can do that 
I mean, it does seem like they're trying to lose, though they failed at that on Sunday. The Jets just wouldn't let them. That's true. I mean, they're in the division with the Jets, so that's going to make their ambition of 0-16 tough. But the the NFL, you know, we, we've talked about this before, too. When there's 16 games and there's these guys out there, you know, like risking their bodies and putting everything into the, each one of those games in terms of preparation, it's hard to just turn around and say, hey, you guys shouldn't win this week because that's good for the franchise long term. We're not sure if you're going to be a part of it, but uh, it's good for us. So that's a hard sell. The only way to really tank in the NFL is to quarterback tank. Quarterback is so important, more important than any other position in sports that if you put someone who's really, really bad in that position, then you're not going to win games. They switched out Josh Rosen for uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick and look what happened. They almost beat the Steelers. They beat the Jets. If they really wanted to lose, they'd still be playing Josh Rosen at quarterback because he's just not as good. They're not going to win as many games with their, you know, less experience. You know, I don't know Josh Rosen's long-term value, but, you know, that is the way to do it. And the times we've seen teams successfully tank, it was often by accident. You know, it was Peyton Manning getting hurt and getting Andrew Luck or, you know, Andrew Luck getting hurt and, and, and getting a bunch of draft picks to an already solid core for that Colts team. So, you're never going to get a team to buy in on all 11 guys on offense or 11 guys on defense just, you know, not trying. The other problem is that, you know, even if you get one great skill position player or one great quarterback, that's just not enough um, in the NFL. I mean, look at what happened with the Browns. I mean, the, we we all thought the Browns were going to be great because they got all these great pieces. They got Odell Beckham, you know, Baker Mayfield's looking great in going into the second year. And then, you know, with the coaching and everything involved and the scheme and, and their approach, and it's all gone, you know, it's all gone up in smoke. And it's only nine weeks into the season. Neil would like to point out that he did not think the Browns. Yeah, I, I wrote a story that I, you edited, Jeff, that where I was skeptical of these Browns. Uh, I just I want that on the record. No, I thought it was great. But I'm saying the general consensus. I mean, you talked about it in that story. I mean, what what were their Super Bowl odds? It was ridiculous. Right. I mean, yeah. it was the Browns. Everyone had completely got blinded by all these like flashy moves and we forgot that there's a lot more that, that they're goes the Browns <laughs> a that they're the Browns and also there's a lot more that goes into the NFL goes into winning in the NFL than let's say the other sports well I do think though you mentioned the 2011 Colts that's sort of the the classic example of the one year tank in football, you know, if if the if the ninety seven Spurs are the example, maybe we could add the twenty 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 uh Golden State Warriors to that list. But I, I do think that that is such a specific exception to the general rule. Once luck got in, to your point, Jeff, it's about more than one player. I, I do think there are two different there are at least two different kinds of tanking. There's the injury tanking and the like just tanking to build for the future, whatever. Plan tanking and opportunistic tanking. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and even that, you know, like you said, the opportunistic tanking can take different forms. But that kind of, I think, thing is easier to recover from with the fan base. And maybe that doesn't matter anyway, because fans just care if you start winning again. But it does feel like with the Warriors, that's they don't have to try to lose. They're going to lose. And so then, you know, whatever happens after that is maybe fine. Yeah, Glenn Robinson the third gives you plausible deniability. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Against tanking. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> I do think there that this is a reason why, you know, the Sixers process 
aside because it's like the most extreme example, but the the shorter term tanks that you can do in the NBA and in the NFL uh, around the quarterback are looked le- are frowned upon less than the tanking that is currently happening in baseball because in baseball you got to lay in some groundwork. You know, you got to build in the infrastructure years ahead of time to be bad uh, and and be willing to put up with the types of seasons that like the Astros and the Cubs had uh, earlier this decade. I mean, they were like irrelevant f- and and winning sixty or fewer games for like three, four years at uh, you know on end, uh, if not more, and so. I do think that like steering a baseball team is like trying to steer like the Titanic or something. Uh, you, you have to plan the movement you're making so far in advance that once you go down the path of tanking, you, you have no choice but to go all in on it. And it becomes just a horrific fan experience. Just ask the Orioles fans. Whereas some of these quicker tank jobs, the the nature of basketball and the nature of football, because they don't have this minor league system, college effectively serves as the minor league system. Uh, and once you get players in place, the prospects, they're pretty ready to contribute in most cases. And, and you can kind of, you know, th- there's there's less uncertainty around which prospects will become stars. It's just such a faster and easier process. And if it, if, if you get a new GM or if you, uh, the fans start to turn on it, you can maybe pull the plug more easily and you don't have like these years worth of, uh, groundwork built up, uh, around the tank to kind of reverse back on. Uh, and so I think that's why baseball tanking has become so kind of pernicious over the past few years is that it really is a question of, like basically do you want to throw away a half decade just with with nothing to show for it on the chance that you'll win some world series but maybe only one i mean the astros yeah they've only won one out of it so far they've they've gone to two uh but yeah i I do think that you'll have people asking whether it's worth it more in baseball than in the nba where we've seen it happen it seems to maybe be more effective also so if you're a fan of the warriors do you want them to tank this year uh, that's a tough question. Uh, yes, I would probably say yes. It's tough if that means losing Draymond, his beloved there, or losing Clay. I mean, I think I don't think anyone's going to really lose a lot of sleep if they get rid of D'Angelo Russell because he was just there. He wasn't part of all that greatness. Again, as I mentioned, the New York teams, I think the worst place to be is this purgatory in between trying to compete and not trying to compete. That is really a recipe for just a treadmill of mediocrity, which we've seen. And and that's just not basketball. I mean, we've seen that in all these sports we've talked about. I think in this case, if you can get away with uh, one year of not being good to build something back up for next year, you take that. I think you can live with that as a fan. Yeah, any any team can have one bad year. Sure, yeah. (laughs) And lots of them without trying. All right, well, let's leave that there. Today's episode is brought to you by LinkedIn. Take it away. Uh, It's always an honor. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have, but you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills that you're looking for so you can hire the right person and fast. Things like collaboration, creativity, adaptability, LinkedIn looks beyond the work skills and connects you with candidates who match your business perfectly. 
That's how LinkedIn can make sure your job post gets in front of the people you want to hire, people with the skills, qualifications, and other insights that help LinkedIn paint a better picture of potential candidates. It's no wonder great candidates are hired every eight seconds on LinkedIn. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash pain, my last name, P-A-I-N-E. Again, that's linkedin.com slash P-A-I-N-E to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Tonight marks the start of the 2019-2020 college basketball season. Both the men's and women's preseason polls had a few surprises. On the women's side, number one is not UConn or even defending champ Baylor. It's Oregon, led by do-it-all senior Sabrina Ionescu. On the men's side, Michigan State is the preseason number one, and this is the first top preseason ranking in school history, which I was... That's surprising. Yeah, that, that is the shocking part to me, not the fact that they are number one. Coach Tom Izzo is not patting himself on the back for that. I still think I'm building the basement in the first floor. You know, someone's going to come and hopefully build a skyscraper if it's done right. The skyscraper can't survive if the basement in the first floor is as solid as a rock. So I, I'm not so sure about Izzo's metaphor there. He's been the coach in East Lansing for 25 years, after all, which is a, a long time to spend building a basement. He's also 37th on the list of career head coaching wins, which seems pretty pretty lofty to me. But what about this year's team? Jeff, does this Spartan squad have what it takes to win a title? Uh, yeah, I, I think Coach Izzo doesn't understand the fundamentals of building construction. <laughs> but um, we won't get into that. You know, he's got to he's got to be a basketball coach. I think a lot of it is, you know, this is college basketball. All the attention goes to these guys who are going to be the one and dones, the lottery picks. And yet those aren't the guys who win at college basketball. Um, You know, obviously, the Anthony Davis, Kentucky team, the Duke team a few years back, it is possible to win with freshmen. But generally, it's becoming clearer and clearer that the that the teams with returning seniors and, and guys who have built a chemistry and have tournament experience do well. And that's, you know, the two Jay Wright teams that won in Villanova fit that mold. And last year's Virginia team certainly fits that mold, who had a ton of returning talent. And Cassius Winston is probably the best player in the country. He's a senior. He's six one, which is great if you're in East Lansing, because it means he's not in the NBA. And he was awesome in the tournament last year and took him to the final four. And and I think, you know, for good reason that that's why they're they have that one next to their name this year. And that pains me to say as as someone who spent a lot of time in Ann Arbor. <laughs> yeah, just recreationally, yeah, like almost for no four reason. years. Yeah, <laughs> just um, hanging out. Yeah, just hung, hung a little out there. more than four years. Yeah, I was second. gonna say <laughs> just a tad. We talk about Michigan State as being the example of the team that doesn't try to build through the freshman one and done type players. It also sort of helps. I think it's not a coincidence that they're the preseason number one in a season where. You don't really have the same level of, you know, Duke has not accumulated four of the top five recruits in the country or, or whatever like they have um, a few times in, in recent years. You know, Memphis is probably that team this year uh, with Penny Hardaway uh, as, as coach. They've got two five-star recruits. 
and five four-star recruits, uh, according to 24-7 Sports, um, uh, coming out of just this specific recruiting class. So to me, that is as close as you'll get to uh, a Duke-style you know, recruiting one-and-done freshman powerhouse type. But they don't really have the same history. They don't have the same you know, reputation. The recruits and the pedigree of, of Duke kind of always put them over the top, and that was why they were um, the number one. And, and the same goes for Kentucky when when they were building the, the Anthony Davis teams and some of the other ones that have had crazy numbers of freshmen uh, in, in the past. Those are the two schools that we think of when we think of that strategy, not Memphis. Well, and Memphis is only ranked 14th in the preseason poll, which and surprised that's surprising. me, yeah, yeah, given those recruits and, and the sort of excitement built up there. But I also have a longstanding grudge against preseason polls. I know we have found that they're predictive, but they still make me angry because it's more about the tradition than about reality. But what does that say about college basketball if the thing that is annoying you because of all the the things that teams have not proven on the court this year yet are the things that are actually more predictive than, you know, how a team has done during the regular season because I think the big knock on college basketball is that the regular season doesn't really matter you know that yeah it matters some obviously it matters more than the nba does into well that's not a (laughs) that's a pretty low bar to clear sure (laughs) but yeah i mean it gets you into the ncaa tournament but for the most part the teams that looked good on paper going in can pretty much sleepwalk through and and make it into the ncaa tournament and uh yeah that talent kind of tells you as much or more about how a team will do once they get there than uh, how they've done in in these regular season contests. Well, I think it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because the rankings boost the teams, the recruits come because of that. Yes, they, they play well, but also those pedigree teams get the benefit of the doubt more in when it comes time to seed the tournament than other teams you get you know north carolina in randomly as a nine seed every once in a while when it's like why are they even in the tournament they did not i mean that happens a lot um i don't have the numbers on that i'm that checking is for anecdotally. the reaction from our uh, unc fan producer tony <laughs> i am <laughs> very anti the blue bloods i am college basketball. i couldn't believe that michigan state had never been a preseason number one even after they had won the national championship. So I was I was reminded of the season of basketball that still makes me the most mad, which was the 1999-2000 season when Michigan State won it all. That Final Four had two number eights in it, a number five and the number one uh, Michigan State. And the one of the eights was North Carolina. So that's why I was thinking about how North Carolina should barely have made the tournament there and then they went to the Final Four, which is really annoying. I, I appreciate that because it uh, was always like a nice little bracket uh, trick where you, you hone in on those teams that were the, the preseason, you know, higher ranked teams that had a disappointing regular season and maybe they got seated, you know, in that like seven, eight, nine kind of slot. And then you're just like, oh yeah, this team is going to steamroll their way through at least the first round. Then they have to go up against the one seed if they're an eight or a nine, but right. still, you know, and then maybe there's some upset possibility there too. You know, I, I think that that anytime there's like weird disparities between how much talent a team has that you know that they have and you know that the the odds makers if they were making picks would be going off of that too and these other factors where we give teams credit for you know wins and losses that they've compiled during the regular season uh, that may not 
be overly predictive. I think that's interesting. That's an interesting dichotomy that you get in college basketball compared with maybe some other sports. I think it's interesting, too. I just don't like it. I, I wish that it mattered that you had to put more effort out there, which is the same thing as the NBA. And it was also why you don't like the NBA <laughs> because you don't have to put much effort in. And that that sucks. That doesn't seem like the way we would want to set up a sport. Like we wouldn't just start with March, right? I know that's when a lot of people tune in. Why? <laughs> what if we uh, did though? It would be really weird. <laughs> if we just were like, okay, guys, go for it. Good luck. <laughs> Michigan State is the one seed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. Why not? They've been practicing in isolation for months. <laughs> yeah, we know nothing Never about actually any of playing these teams. against yeah. other teams. Yeah, that would be actually kind of amazing. So on the women's side, number one Oregon was thrilled to get back Wade Trophy and Wooden Award winner Sabrina Ionescu, who returned for her senior year instead of leaving for the WNBA. Neil, couldn't Oregon win the title this year? Yeah, I mean they definitely can, and this is shaping up to be kind of Sabrina's moment, right? I mean, you know, by uh, it's it's a little like. Um, I remember maybe this is not a good example for championship uh, hopes, but I remember when Peyton Manning uh, decided to come back to Tennessee uh, for one more year, uh, even though he could have gone probably number one uh, in the NFL draft uh, the the spring beforehand, just to kind of do it again and 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 take another shot at it, and that's kind of what this reminds me of, where like she is the biggest star, uh, and uh, this seems like a great opportunity, and I think it's great in a way that that you don't see this in on the men's side because of the one and done and because of just early entry anyway by the way that's going to go away after uh, i think next season is uh, they they've gotten rid of the one and done rule or they're talking about getting rid of it um uh, relatively soon so this dynamic could change on the men's side too but it it is kind of unique to women's college basketball where you see the best player in the country decide to kind of come back and and forego a chance to go pro uh, for for another shot at uh, the college championship. So, what could stand in their way this year? Are there any particular teams that anyone's uh, that you're looking out for this year? Well, I mean, you know, the Pac-12 is kind of stacked this year. You also have Stanford. You've got Oregon State, uh, and you know, looking wider across the country, Baylor. Even though you mentioned they were not the the preseason number one, defending champs have some talent coming back. And UConn, uh, we, we really haven't talked about them aside from the fact that it's kind of surprising. And I do wonder about them as to whether their their time as the sort of default – you know, overwhelming. Let's let's pick them and forget about everything until late March, early April, and and see see where they uh, whether they lose in an upset on a buzzer beater in the national semifinal or go to the final and and win. I don't know if those days are are numbered, you know, or over by now. Have have we kind of witnessed the the end of an era and and kind of the passing of the torch uh, for UConn or? Have rumors of UConn's demise been been greatly exaggerated? I don't know. I think we're still in kind of a um, a transition period where it I could see it going either way. Yeah, I think you count out UConn at your own peril, right? It's like how every fall, not this fall, but the Patriots, you know, lose an early game. And you're like, oh, the Patriots yeah. are done, and then they are not done. And this year, they're like, no, no, we're just going to win most of them. It's fine. They did make the Final Four. What was that? Their twelfth Final Four yeah. in a row. I mean, it's just a funny team to be like, oh, they're they're done. They right. Didn't win yeah. The title. 
No, it's true. But, I mean, it does speak to the standard of how dominant they were during that stretch where they won four straight uh, championships and I think uh, six and eight years or something like that, that, like, anything short of winning the championship, even if you're two wins short, feels like kind of a letdown. Right. And, you, I mean, UConn has always been so good at, oh, they've lost, you know, these, this big star. They, lo- they lose – well, they lose Kitty Lou Sam- Samuelson, but then they still have – Crystal Danger Dangerfield. I mean, they still have one of the best players in the country. It doesn't seem like they're someone we should ever ever think doesn't have a chance. They always have a chance. And now we can make a lot of Dangerfield no respect I know. jokes. I do I do love her name. She has a great, great name. So Baylor lost Kalani Brown, but still has Lauren Cox, who got hurt in the final, is so good. And Melissa Smith, who um, really proved herself after Cox went down. Baylor, though, has their thing where they only win championships every seven years. So, I mean, you pick against them. Yeah, clearly that, that, right? yeah. that will continue. <laughs> so, well, the season uh, gets underway tonight for both men's and women's basketball. So we will check in on these teams throughout the the season. And when March Madness rolls around, we'll see if we needed the regular season at all or could have just started right with that. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, get us started. Well, for this week's rabbit hole, I want to extend a special congratulation to the Houston Astros. I know that they uh, they did not win the World Series, but they can still put up a championship banner in a certain way. Because they finished the season as number one in our 538 MLB ELO ratings. The, the real championship. <laughs> Which is it's what the real really title. matters uh, for the championship. I think it, we could consider the Nationals and the Astros sort of like co-champions of, of 2019. <laughs> you know, I, I'm joking, but it is surprisingly common to see the best team in baseball. We can use ELO as kind of a proxy for that to kind of refresh listeners who don't really know what ELO is. It's a rating system that basically tracks, you know, how good you're supposed to be going into the season. Then it bakes in who you've played. uh, You know, have you beaten them? How much did you beat them by? And kind of tracks it throughout the season all the way to the end and gives you a power rating. Basically, this can create these paper champions, uh, these teams that despite losing the the championship still had the higher ELO rating at the end of the year. And in baseball, it's happened 28 times since 1966. I chose 1966 for reasons that will become clear later. That's 52% of baseball seasons in that span have ended with the the number one team on paper not being the the actual World Series winner. Uh, now, in some of the cases, a lot of cases, forty six percent of them, in fact, you can explain it away by basically a head to head victory. So Washington beating Houston, that's head to head. Another paper champ from recent years in twenty fifteen, the Blue Jays, they finished number one in Elo. They lost in the playoffs to the Kansas City Royals, who went on to win the World Series. So you can kind of connect those dots about half the time and explain why the paper champion didn't win just by saying, well, they ran into the actual champ who beat them head to head. Uh, and that was the reason why they didn't get it. Sometimes you have to dig a little deeper, like in 2011, the Yankees were the paper champion that year, but you have to say that they lost to Detroit who lost to the Texas Rangers, who lost the World Series to the 
champion St. Louis Cardinals, and that's how you draw that path. That's pretty rare in in baseball, but uh, sometimes you have to resort to that. So I was thinking, okay, we know half the time this happens in baseball, and baseball is notably a pretty random sport. I think we've talked about it on numerous occasions on the show, actually, uh, perhaps related to the Twins and and their postseason uh, foibles. Sorry, Sarah. But I wanted to know how often it happened in other sports. And what I found was, so I looked at the NFL, the NBA, college football, and men's college basketball going back to 1966. That was the the start of the Super Bowl era. And then I looked at women's college basketball starting in 2002, which is the first year that we have data uh, for and ELO ratings for. And I looked at how often those sports produce paper champs, champions, best teams that are different from the actual official champion. And I found that each of those sports were pretty similar in their rates, and they were far less common in those other sports than they were in baseball. So in the NFL, only about 20% of the time does it produce a paper champion. Uh, in the NBA, 28% of the time. In college football, 26% of the time. Uh, in men's college basketball, 26% of the time. And in women's college basketball, 22% of the time. Those are strikingly similar rates, and they're about half or less than half of what you see in baseball. I think some of it comes down to the nature of the sports. We've talked about football and basketball being similar in terms of how much information any given game conveys. Uh, and in those sports, if there is an exception uh, and, and there is a paper champ, it's almost always going to be because of a head-to-head result. In the NFL, 91% of the time, the the paper champion was caused by that team losing to the eventual Super Bowl champion in the playoffs, which is an impressive rate if you think about it. And th- these are cases like, you know, in, in 2014, the, the, the Seahawks had the best rating at the end of the year. They lost head-to-head in the Super Bowl to the Patriots. And the Patriots have been involved in a number of these in both directions. You think of 2011 and t- 2007, they were probably the best team that year. Both times they lost the Super Bowl to the Giants. But in 2001, the Rams were probably the best team. They finished with the best ELO. They lost the Super Bowl to the Patriots. And then in the NBA, it's just pretty rare in general. You often see the best team win. Uh, the only exceptions are weird upsets. So Dallas finished the 2006 season with the highest ELO. They lost the finals to the Miami Heat. Uh, and, and after sort of staking themselves to a huge lead in that series also, it seemed like they were destined to win. So sometimes upsets happen. Uh, sometimes they don't even happen in the finals. The Portland Trailblazers... Very sad. In 2000, they finished the season with the top ELO rating. That does not erase the suffering of that meltdown that they had in the Western Conference Finals against the Lakers. You can kind of extend this to men's college basketball, too. Uh, 79% of the time, the road to the title for the paper champion is thwarted by the actual champion. But I'm interested in college football because it is the sport that until recently, definitely did not have a playoff system. Uh, you could call what it has now the playoff system. And indeed, it has produced fewer paper champions since they started putting in the uh, college football playoff. It's only happened once. Uh, that was the case of Alabama losing to Clemson, but still finishing with a higher ELO in 2016. But most of the time in the history of college football, you just have these disconnected teams that are kind of on their own track. They're winning their games. Uh, and then you get to the bowls. They don't play each other, uh, especially before the 90s. They never played each other almost. And they just end the season. And it's like, 
okay, who's the best team? This is why you had those split championships back in the day where the AP would vote for one team, but the co- uh, coaches poll would vote for another. It was really impossible to say. And even when you start to try to go into uh, some of these like degrees of separation and, and use the, the transitive property to try to explain why one team was ahead of another one, uh, you get into some really ridiculous ones. The, the weirdest one I found was in 1983. So the paper champion that year is Auburn. They had the highest ELO rating, but Miami ended up winning the championship. So how do you get from Miami uh, and, and draw a path through head-to-head results that get them ahead of Auburn? Well, Miami beat Notre Dame, and Notre Dame beat Boston College, and Boston College beat Clemson, who tied Georgia, who beat Texas, who beat Auburn. So that you have to go through six different steps in order to arrive from Miami and kind of draw a path. And that just goes to show how bizarre college football was before they put in a proper playoff system. It was almost impossible to say who the best team was. And often you ran into these situations where you just had to kind of throw up your hands. Baseball has a bracket, has a playoff system, a, a dedicated way of, of determining head to head. And it's still half the time the, the team that uh, looks the best on paper is not the team that wins. And I think that's one of the charms of baseball. And it's <laughs> charms, also not like drawbacks. It's well, I, I think it, it depends on the perspective that you want to take. If you think that the World Series and, and the playoffs in baseball should determine who the best team is beyond a shadow of a doubt, then this is a flaw. You know, it kind of exposes that a lot of uh, randomness and and just matchups can happen in the playoffs and key injuries and and a bunch of other uh, factors uh, that that lead to the best team on paper not winning. But who can say that we ha- have been deprived of of drama and and excitement and and unpredictability? That, that we would have had if you just sort of made everything be based on who seems to be the best team and, and so on and so forth. Instead, we get this kind of wonderful, chaotic uh, event that I think stands up there with, I was surprised in my research, March Madness has the reputation as being the most chaotic and the most exciting and the most unpredictable uh, event in in kind of the major sports. But March Madness ain't got nothing on baseball when it, when it comes to, you know, the kind of topsy-turviness of its playoff system. So depending on where you stand, this could be uh, an appreciation of the baseball playoffs or for all those Astro fans out there who are probably like, give us one more game make it best of nine you know all of that this serves as just hey stuff happens in baseball in the playoffs man counterpoint some of us are happy when just the regular season ends so we just pretend that the postseason yeah you tried to make this case to me the other day that um you followed 162 games of the twins and then you were just like all right i'm turning the tv off we're good that's good nothing that happens afterward can alter exactly the regular season exactly exactly they're two different universes sarah you were born to root for English soccer, because that's, that's what you get over there. <laughs> well, that was actually the point I was making to my soccer-hating friend, Neil, here, who, that, that it's, the soccer is giving me a better appreciation for how to understand the, the Twins and Vikings. Well, their crossover between paper champs and actual champs is 100% yeah, or yeah, near yeah. about. I mean, maybe Leicester City, the year that they came out of nowhere, would have had a lower ELO rating by the end of the schedule even right. than than some of the other teams. But for the most part, 
also because of the crazy amounts of, uh, you know, payroll inequality <laughs> in, in the EPL, the best teams start out looking good and they play each other, you know, one time a piece home and home. And then at the end, whoever has the best record is the champ. And there are no paper champs in the EPL for the most and part. And no one has any fun. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Didn't you write an article where we were looking at uh, Elo Cross Sports and the 2007 Patriots were actually the highest ranked team in, I think, all sport? It might have been like one of those old, old timey Babe Ruth Yankee teams, but it was like that Patriot team was better on paper than pretty much any NFL team or any team in in recent decades. Yeah, I think that's right. Um certainly they're they're the best NFL team on paper of all time and there's something kind of amazing to that that you could say that they are the best team of all time and be right by a certain definition and yet at the same time they didn't win the championship that year. Isn't that like a crazy conundrum that, that that could only be produced in, you know, knockout sports settings? Yeah, I feel like the the thing I'm taking away from this is if the Patriots lose in the AFC championship, whoever knocks them out is going to win the Super Bowl and I should bet a lot of money on them. I guess if they end up as paper champs. Right, assuming that. But they that, may not, you well, know. Sure. Yeah, I, I think sure. the the Saints may have passed them in our ELO ratings uh, this week. Ooh, so wow, that one lost. What that? if we get a Saints Patriots uh, Super Bowl, which we should have had last year? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, we probably should have had Saints Chiefs. I mean, I think your point speaks to a when you were talking about college football, how broken college football was, and how desperate it needed a playoff. Because if you're not even you know playing the playoffs and in getting the the right champion, as we saw, you know, numerous times, you know, pre BCS, especially when all the teams aren't playing each other like they are in English soccer, which you know isn't even a fair comparison. Yeah, and I think sometimes maybe we put too much premium on head to head results where we can, because we can see it with our eyes, we give it more weight than than other evidence. If the preponderance of a team's other common opponents had Team A being stronger than Team B, but Team B beat Team A head to head, I think we would most fans and and even us as kind of supposedly neutral observers would consider team B to be the better team, you know, because we've seen that outcome happen. So I'm not saying everything should come down to head to head, but it is a little weird that in some of these college football seasons, you have to, you have to dig into like six levels of, you know, common opponents just to find some string of, of results that kind of makes one better. So I guess no matter how much people complain about the college football playoff and who's in and who's out, whatever, it's still better than what it was. Yeah. And we should be happy with that. On, uh, with Without a doubt, it is. this is the best time to be a college football fan if you want any kind of certainty at right. the end of a season. Right, right, right. That makes sense to me. All right, well, that will do it for this week's show. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover us. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.